Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, pour yourself a glass of revolting wine. It's SST 164, the These Immortal Souls LP, Get Lost, Don't Lie. <laughs> we love this band. And uh, I was I was saying, uh, Brent, I'm not sure that you and I have ever really discussed Roland, Harry, the birthday party, anything like that. So it's kind of the first time that you and I will ever get into it. But even better than that, of course, we have a special guest. Yeah, we've got Harry Howard on the show. Oh, it's so cool to have Harry on. It's a great interview. Even though Brant did not sneak in a reference to DOA, Guns N' Roses, or Dawkin. <laughs> Junkyard. <laughs> it's still it's still a good uh it's still a good interview. Well, hey, speaking of Junkyard, that's a great birthday party record, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, I did resist the urge to ask him about a bunch of Australian bands that he's completely not associated with, but maybe is, is like the Screaming Tribesmen or, you know, the Cosmic Psychos or any of those great bands. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You and I have talked about Australian bands since we've known each other, of course. Never really Roland or... Uh, Harry, so very cool to get into this, but it must be a big thrill for you in particular to get into an Australian music episode because you're such a you're a mega fan, and and I mean you've even been a guest on an Australian music podcast. That's how big of a fan you are. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really fun diving in this week for sure. Yeah, right on. Well, before we get into this wicked album, why don't you hit me with some spiels? Okay, Ryan, I've got. Three on the Tree, Bootleg Edition. Whoa, okay. So the, these are three bootlegs on the SS Tree. Now, a while back, I was in a, a conversation with this tape trader, and I used the word bootleg to describe an unreleased, unofficial live recording. And he took great offense to my use of that word. Uh, I believe he thought I was suggesting it was also unsanctioned by the artist. And he kind of proceeded to lecture me about the history of bootlegs, etc. Whatever. I contend he was being a little sensitive. I've recorded many live shows myself. Some from the audience, some straight from the board, uh, some with permission, some without. I call these bootlegs. I don't make the distinction about whether I, I have permission or not. Is that okay, Ryan? Yeah, that's permissible under the bylaws. But I mean, for me, <laughs> I always think a bootleg is something that doesn't really come out on a label like an official label even if it's an indie label if it's i think of a bootleg of someone who has taped it sanctioned or unsanctioned but it doesn't come out on a, a label and rather that person who taped it or one of their friends or whatever it eventually gets released um just out there without any sort of label or marketing machine behind it. Therefore, it's a bootleg. That's my definition. Yeah. All right. Just wanted to make sure we were on the same page there. So listener Greg McCaughey sent me some unreleased Left Insane material. No way. Yeah. Left Insane is one of our faves on the tree for sure. Uh, their full-length record Toolbox from 1990 on Nemesis Records was produced and engineered by Bill Stevenson and Stefan Edgerton. Tony Cicero, who was, of course, the drummer for the three full-length albums by Saccharin Trust on SST, plays drums on it. You can still read an interview with Tony that's up on our blog where we talk a bit about Left Insane. Now, 
before the Toolbox album, Ryan, in 1989, they were they recorded at Third Wave Studio in Torrance, California, with Bill producing and Stefan playing bass on that session. Yep. Now, out of that session, they released a four-song seven-inch and a second split with a band called Haywire. So Greg sent me the entire ten-song session. Whoa. From that, so. Uh, and he also sent me another eight-song recording that was done live on KXLU, which is an FM station broadcasting out of Loyola Marymount University in southwest L.A. It's been on the air for over 60 years, and many famous musicians and future label staff, etc., have had shows on the station. Musically, with Left Insane, there's a big flag, gone influence. It's mainly instrumental, although main man and guitar shredder Paul Radabaugh does sing a few songs. So I hit up Paul and asked him some questions about some of these sessions and about Left Insane and their history. Here's what he said. Left Insane was a hell of a monster live band. And playing that stuff was a workout. I, I regret that we never found a singer because I never really wanted that role and my vocal range is extremely limited. I wanted to get Keith Morris, but he told someone that I played too much like Gin. <laughs> I... <laughs> I'd become acquainted with drummer Tony Cicero and bassist Bobby Fitzer on the 86 Saccharin Trust Tour. Their singer Jack Brewer asked me to come along and run sound. They were playing the We Became Snakes material and the audiences were sometimes cow-faced and confused because they expected punk rock and got something that was more akin to the lounge lizards meet the doors. Hmm. But they were great almost every night and did some bills with the Bad Brains, Sonic Youth, Firehose, Dr. No, Green River. When we got back, it was evident that this version of Saccharin was pretty well done. Me and Tony began playing together and did a one-off, backing Deborah Exit at the Whiskey. I needed a new place to live, so I rented an office space next to All's Place and moved in, and Fitzer and Cicero and I started learning each other's songs. This was a very illuminating thing for me because Fitzer played fretless like Jocko and really pushed me musically. Cicero and I agreed on the name while getting high in a car in Lomita after struggling to find one. It was and still is a bad name. Our first outing was a live KXLU broadcast that didn't happen because Bob wasn't in shape to play, so we were out a bass player. Meanwhile, the all guys were hearing our tunes through the wall and became incredibly supportive and new friends to me. Stefan stepped up on bass and arranged the third wave session for us, and we recorded the whole thing live to stereo dat in one session. Stefan also led us to bassist Dave Gomez, and Left Insane played regularly for a while at clubs like Raji's, Anti-Club, Al's Bar, Bogart's, and house parties with locals like Pop Defect, Al7, Virulence, Chemical People, Sort of Quartet, on and on. I was diving hard into writing for the band, Tony had the song Granite Master, Dave had one, and the rest I brought in mostly completed. Dave was plugged into some good community and was very helpful, keeping Left Insane sights on where our strengths were. We participated in some benefits for legal fees for detained immigrants, and revolutionary communists kept trying to recruit Dave to be their new handsome and English-speaking Che, but Dave didn't want or need any of that. That's Dave playing bass on the KXLU live tape. Enter Warren Croft, really good dude and Left Insane's biggest fan. He put out some of the third wave tracks as a 7-inch seven, seven on his new label, No Reality. Bill Stevenson and Stefan recorded Toolbox, 
with Dave on bass at Ethan James Studio, Radio Tokyo in Santa Monica. Some good fanzine press started happening, and Big Frank from Zed Records in Long Beach put Toolbox out on his label, Nemesis. Dave left and was replaced by Pat Hoed, who had heard us from KXLU, and we clicked well. In 89, all offered us a tour slot. Pat Split and Darren Zorro Culkins was recruited to play the tour. After a couple rocky first shows, Zorro pretty much killed it every night. Tony was pretty reliably great, and I was learning how to play play to an audience and play more fluid. Much of that tour, I was mixing and checking sound for all, as well as playing Left Insane's opening set every night. I don't remember as many bands from this one, but My Name and Gone stick out. Ah. I was mes- What's that, Ryan? Oh, My Name. I think I'm pretty sure that's a CZ band. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. I was mesmerized by how Sim Kane and Andrew Weiss played together. I re- remember riding in the Gone van and hearing some funky shit like I'd never known and asked Andrew what it was. He tried eloquently not to condescend and just said, Bootsy. When the tour was finished, Left and Slain played one last show at the Gaslight and we were done. I worked for the seminal legal weed pioneer Jack Herrer for a bit and then went back out on tour doing sound for the Doughboys. He sent me some more, Ryan, about what he did before and after Left Insane, which also has some branches on the SS tree, but I, I think I'll save those for a future spiel. So thanks to Paul for sending that info, and thanks to Greg for the awesome Left Insane material. Yeah. It, it would be great if Paul put all of these sessions up on a band camp so people could, could check them out. They're really great. Okay, my second bootleg on the, on the SS tree is a Zoog's Rift boot. What? So, yes. So this dude, John Butler Kerr, who was a Zoog's fan from New Jersey, ended up collaborating with Zoog's on a record called Sanitized for Your Protection in 98. John says, it's a really fun album made up of all cover songs chosen by Zoog's to tell his life story up to that point. We had a blast making it. Zoog's came up here to Portland and stayed with my wife and I for a couple of weeks. We did the studio album and a lot of home recording. So anyways, John sent me a folder full of tapes he got from Zoogs over the years, and I'm working my way through it. It goes all the way back to 1973 with the first Zobus demo, right up to the 90s. There's a whole bunch of live stuff, uh, outtakes, demos, interviews, but my favorite that I've gotten to so far is a double live set recorded again on KXLU on the show Brain Cookies in 1989. Now, if you remember, Ryan, Brain Cookies was the Splat Winger show that the album Taste Test Volume 1 yep. came out of. Yep. So Zoogs is just hilarious throughout throughout this. It's over two hours. Uh, he takes phone calls. He <laughs> talks about SST, <laughs> Zappa, Tim Buckley, uh, wrestling. The band is just smoking. It's Tom Brown on drums, Jonathan Mako Sharkey on keys, Willie Lappin on bass, and Zoogs just tearing it up on guitar. And... By the way, Ryan, everyone who I just mentioned, other than Willie Lappin, has unfortunately since passed away. Mm-hmm. It was recorded between Murdering Hell's Happy Cretans and Torment, and he talks about both records. Again, I wish this was available on Bandcamp for people to hear. It's it's really good. It's really great. So thanks to John for sending me that that awesome folder. And then the third one I listened to this week, Ryan, which I go back to fairly frequently, is the Across the River demos from '85. So if you remember, Across the River started out as Dead Issue with bassist Scott Reeder, drummer 
Alfredo Hernandez, guitarist Mario Lali, and guitarist vocalist Herb Leno. They changed their name to Darkside and re- recorded the awesome track Rights Right for the Desperate Teenage Love Dolls yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. In 85, Herb left the band. Mark Anderson joined as a second guitarist and they changed their name to Across the River. They started playing shows with various SST bands of that era like SWA, October Faction, Painted Willie, Saccharine Trust, DC3, Firehose. They recorded a four-track demo and more songs and were apparently slated to release a full-length album on SST, but for whatever reason it didn't happen. Scott Reeder ended up taking a few of the songs with him later on into The Obsessed and also Caius. We'll be seeing all of these dudes way later when we get to the sort of quartet, Fatso Jets and stuff. Yeah. This demo really does deserve some sort of proper release, though. Like, it's just awesome proto-grunge desert rock Mm. with a heavy dose of 70s groove and some Sabbath vibes. The songs are really great. I'm actually kind of shocked it's never been properly released. Sounds like something that In the Red should put out, maybe. Yeah, or like Southern Lord, maybe. Yeah, Southern Lord is better. You're right. Yeah. If you haven't heard this, you really should try and track it down. It's for sure up on YouTube. There's some live footage of the band, actually. And while you're there, make sure to check out the killer Fatso Jetson Jam in the Van session. Okay, Ryan, before I pass it over to you, I just have to quickly dip my toe into the Compso. <laughs> I listened to a comp this week called Red Snurts. The Sound of Gulture from 1981. Yes. Do you remember when that comp came up on the show before? Did it come up? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you brought that up when you mentioned that comp Rocky Mountain Low brand. Oh, the one that Joseph Pope was involved in. Yeah, because it was, it's kind of um, like a, a weird scene comp, kind of, right? It is, yeah. So in 1981... Uh, This label, Gulture Records, was founded in Bloomington, Indiana by Bob Richard. This was in 1975, making Gulture one of the very first and longest-running independent record labels in the U.S. Like, I think it's still active today. There's a band on here called Amoebas in Chaos, kind of like reggae new wave. They were associated with Dow Jones and the Industrials and the Last Four Digits, uh, both who we'll hear later on this comp. They And the three of those bands also formed a label together called Hardly Music. Amoebas and Chaos has a full length on that label. Came out in 82. Probably one of the more well-known groups on this comp, the Gizmos. First wave punk band from Bloomington. Future members of Crawl Space, The Forgiven, and others. Uh, there's some early punk on here from the Jetsons, Defects, The Panics. Some cool Devo-esque art punk from Mr. Science. Uh, a, Azax, E in Brino has one of my faves on here with like more Devo inspired nerd rock, a song called Indianapolis. The Zero Boys do a really cool song called New Generation. It's an earlier version, way more primitive than uh, ended up on their debut LP Vicious Circle. Dow Jones in the Industrials, which Brad Garton, aka Mr. Science was also in. They have an awesome art punk track called Ladies with Appliances. There's some cool first wave punk from the band called Post Raisin Band. Last Four Digits, Freddy and the Fruit Loops, Beirut, The Dancing Cigarettes. Very cool and eclectic scene comp. Yeah, when I when I checked that out, I was like, I wonder if some of those bands are maybe not real bands. I like, think so, yeah. 
like post raisin band and Freddie and the Fruit Loops, that sounds like a couple of serial fake serial bands. <laughs> yeah, well, when you you know the, those are the only tracks by them, so probably just wrote these songs to round out the comp, maybe. Yeah, from other and members from other bands that were the real ones on there. Yeah, yeah, that's a cool one though. Post punk, weird. Yeah, those are my spiel's, man. What do you have? Cool. Well, I only have a couple of quick ones because I want to get into this record. I actually want to get taken to school by you in a sec here. Um, the first spiel, though, is just a note for everyone that it very soon is going to be time to buy a futon again. Yeah. Saw that. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. A new five-song SNFU record is coming out called A Blessing But With It A Curse five unreleased songs recorded at the same time of their in the meantime and in between time, which was one of their best later era records for sure. Yep. Um, dudes from Propaganda play on it. Can't wait to check that out when it's out. Obviously, I mean, it's uh, it's bittersweet now that Chai's gone, but always great to uh, know that there's more SNFU that they could unearth out there because uh, I, I don't think I'll ever get tired of SNFU, so looking forward to it. Well, I wonder if Chai's on it. If it was, rec was it recorded during those sessions? Yes. Yeah. yeah my, well, I mean, I certainly haven't seen anything to suggest that Chai's not the lead singer on it. Hmm. Maybe, and but maybe that's what those message boards mean when they say that, like Chris from Propaganda is singing on it. Yeah. Uh, I, Gosh, I hope they're Chai songs. I don't. I just hope they don't put out an SNFU record without him singing on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That would be that'd be rough. Yeah. Um. Anyways, and then a second spiel I wanted to give real quick. It comes up in the interview, but and a, and it's like a blink and you'll miss it reference that Harry makes to this band called the Moodists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know them. Yeah, so so do I, and and it's um, a band that I've been a fan of for a long time, and I just wanted to give a quick spiel on them if I could. Yeah. Okay. Do it, man. So the Moodists, they're a Melbourne, Australia post-punk band, active from '80 80 to '87. They actually started out as a band called the Sputniks in Adelaide, but then they moved to Melbourne. They eventually moved to London, though, and and Harry. I think references them as a London band. The their mainstays or, or the I guess the the people that started off the band were Dave Graney on vocals, Claire Moore on drums, Steve Miller on guitar. Uh, when they moved to Melbourne, they got a guy named Chris Walsh on bass. They signed to the great Australian Agogo Records in 1981. They released uh, the excellent Engine Shutter EP on Agogo. Then they relocated to London. They released an LP called Thirsty's Calling for Virgin in 84, another great record. They released a ton of singles. Uh, a great place to go, though, if you want to check out the Moodists, is a comp that came out called Two-Fisted Art, a yeah. double disc. Awesome. Yeah, that's the one I have. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good collection of almost everything. Disc two is all live, though. Dave Graney is the guy that Harry mentions... Dave Graney played in Kim Salmon's band Salmon, which released one record, but he also is in with Claire Moore in the Harry Howard and the NDE band, which Harry will mention. Yeah. Uh, but Dave had a bunch of bands that he led after the Moodists, like uh, Dave Graney and the White Buffaloes and the Coral Snakes, the Dave Graney Show, 
all of which Claire Moore plays in. But another thing about the Moodists that you should check out is a guy named Mick Turner was a guitarist for the Moodists at one point as well. Now, Mick, I'm a fan of his other bands as well. He was uh, in a band called Venom P. Stinger. Yeah, I know. Which, yeah. yeah, which is like an Australian noise band. They have a couple of records, or three, I think, uh, called Meet My Friend Venom, What's Yours Is Mine, Tear Bucketer. There's also a great comp on Drag City. So Mick Turner from the Moodist. He's also a member of the great instro band Dirty Three. Wow. So Didn't know that. Yeah, so th- this is to give, you know, give some props to the Moodists. They, ha- they have tons of releases, but they're not very well known, at least as far as I can tell. Um, but it's just to give you a taste, though, if you just dive into one Australian band from that era, you can you can go forever, right? Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I want to hear the Harry Howard and the NDE stuff. I've never heard it. It's cool. It's cool. I, I mean, I, I haven't uh, I haven't purchased any of the records, but I checked it out a while back. I think that he, I think Harry switches off vocals with his. I think it's his girlfriend. I don't know. Yeah, it's it is. He mentions it in the interview. Yeah. 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 It's definitely some homework. Anyways. Yep. The Moodists, though, check them out. Yeah. Right on, man. Should we uh, get lost? Don't lie. History lesson part one. So I'm going to turn it over to you right away, Brant, but. Just for folks who want to get a get a quick kind of intro into Roland's music and this scene too, definitely check out that great documentary, Autoluminescent. Yep. 100%. Um, there's also this great book, Inner City Sound by Clinton Walker. It, it's punk and post-punk in Australia, 76 to 85. There's also an accompanying compilation that comes with the book too. If you want to get into the stuff from that era. And of course, uh, all of the bands that we know and love are are in here. Like, you know, the scientists, the saints, birthday party, go-betweens, but tons and tons more. And it's, it's basically like, you know, a local Australian zine from back then. Cause no one else was covering it, yeah. obviously. Yep. Um, there's also another documentary that I have not been able to track down it's called we're living on dog food have you ever seen that one Hmm, no yeah it's it's about the australian punk scene too i have there's a bunch of um teaser clips up for it on like youtube but i've never seen that documentary and I, i still i'm trying to find it but you know these immortal souls very important band when you watch the film autoluminescent though it is true when people comment on it about how a great, how much of a great band they are, but I don't think get the cred that they need, right? Not, well, yeah, I think the rest of Roland's career before and after kind of overshadowed these immortal souls. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's a shame. Yeah, it is. Okay, well, here's what I, what I came up with, Ryan. A lot of this is from liner notes to albums, um, which I'll be mentioning. Uh, And there's also a a great website called From the Archives where I pulled some of this stuff too. Oh, is that like an Australian-focused website? Uh, No, there's other bands on there like The Gun Club, Suicide. There's some good stuff on there. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so the story of these immortal souls uh, is more or less the story of musician Roland S. Howard. Born October 24th, 1959 in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, After a few early bands between 74 and 77, 
with names like Tutho and the Ring of Confidence, and another called the Obsessions, he formed his first real band, the Young Charlatans, at age 16, and wrote what be would become his most well-known song, arguably, Shivers. He started making a name for himself in the scene, per partially based on the strength of his original material, but mainly based, I would say, on his, at the time, very original and unique guitar playing. After about 13 live gigs, the Young Charlatans split up in June of 78. And concurrently to, to this band happening, Nick Cave and his friends Tracy Pugh, uh, Mick Harvey and Phil Calvert form the band The Boys Next Door and start gigging like crazy around Melbourne. In 1978, after playing around 150 shows and recording what would end up being side one of their debut album, Roland ends up joining the boys next door and bringing many of his songs from the young charlatans including shivers with him in january of 79 they complete the debut album door door which came out in june of that year on mushroom records after playing nearly 150 more shows locally in 1980 they moved to london and changed their name to the birthday party after releasing a self-titled album in 1980 and then uh, Prayers on Fire in 81 and Junkyard in 82, as well as some singles and EPs, they relocate to West Berlin in 1982. On a US tour, they meet Lydia Lunch and record an album with her in Berlin called Honeymoon in Red, as well as a 12-inch EP credited to Lydia and Roland, which is a cover of Some Velvet Morning, a song written by one of Roland's musical heroes, Lee Hazelwood. The Honeymoon in Red record wasn't released until 1987 uh, with some overdubs on it by J.G. Thurlwell and Thurston Moore. By this point, Roland is in a relationship with singer and piano player Genevieve McGuckin, and she played on both releases as well as contributing to songwriting, and she also co-wrote a few of, the, of Roland's contributions to some birthday party tracks. Uh, there's some conflict starting between Nick and Roland. It seems in large part due to this, you know, songwriting within the band. And Roland ends up leaving the birthday party, uh, who would go on to change their name to Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Here's a, I'm going to read you some liner notes from Lydia Lunch and in an album she did with Roland, which will come up later. Translucent skin, jet black hair, pale blue eyes, a dandy in a dark suit with the air of a wayward angel teleported in from another dimension, another planet, some other time that was outside of Earth time. Roland was magical, spectral, unearthly, just like the sounds which seeped from his guitar that channeled all the beauty, pain, and sorrow that words alone were just too one-dimensional to fully decode. We met in New York during the birthday party's first trip to America. On stage, he was mesmerizing. A blade-thin, black-clad vampire with a thousand-yard stare, murdering the guitar. Meanwhile, Australian post-punk band Crime in the City Solution disbands and main man Simon Bonney moves to London in 1983. In 1985, Simon reforms the band in London at the suggestion of Mick Harvey, who joins on drums and keyboards, and they recruit Roland on guitar and Roland's younger brother, Harry Howard, on bass. In 1985, they release the Dangling Man EP and the Just South of Heaven EP, both on Mute Records. 
1986, ex-Swell Maps drummer Kevin Godfrey, a.k.a. Epic Soundtracks, joins on drums, and they record and release a full-length album, Room of Lights, also on mute. It's produced by Tony Cohen, a long-standing engineer and collaborator, collaborator going back to the boys next door. He engineered their Door Door record as well as most of their others and kept working with Nick Cave and many other famous Australian bands for many years. Also, some of the album was produced and engineered by Mark Ellis, a.k.a. Flood, who by this point was practically Mute's in-house producer. And Flood would go on to work with Nick Cave, Depeche Mode. Uh, in 1987, he engineered U2's The Joshua Tree, uh, which obviously his career took off after that. He eventually worked with Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, PJ Harvey. So at Epic Soundtrack's first gig with Crime in the City Solution at the Marquee in London, Roland meets Epic's brother, Nick Godfrey, a.k.a. Nicky Sutton. Nicky at the time is recording his solo album Texas, and Roland plays on it after they became fast friends. Later that year, he also plays on Nicky's Dead Men Tell No Tales album. By this point, Roland has also started working on an embryonic version of the group that would go on to be called These Immortal Souls. Back as early as 84, he was recording with Barry Adams, Adamson of Magazine, Chris Walsh of a group called The Moodists, and ex-Young yes. Charlatan's bandmate Jeffrey Wagner, along with Genevieve on organ. I found a quote from Harry where he said, Roland initially proposed these immortal souls as a sort of grand side project, I suppose. It certainly meant a lot to him to sing his own lyrics, and Epic, Genevieve, and I were more than happy to be involved. In 1986, Crime in the City Solution tours the UK, Australia, and the US. Some really cool US shows with bands like Live Skull, Rad Waste, Ryan. Nice. Killdozer, Pussy Galore. And then in December of that year, Roland, Harry, and Epic leave the band Crime in the City Solution. Now, earlier in 86, prior to all of the touring with Crime in the City Solution, Roland, Genevieve, Harry, and Epic had done some sessions at various London studios, including The Garden, Strong Room, Conk, and Trident with engineers Tony Cohen, Flood, and Alan Mulder. Alan also has a lengthy and impressive discography, often working alongside Flood. In early 1987, they finalized the album at some variation of the aforementioned studios, and they play their first show at the Mean Fiddler in London, opening for Sonic Youth. It would later be Sonic Youth who would tell Greg Ginn about the band, which would lead to them being the first non-U.S. band to release material on SST. Throughout 87, they play a couple more shows locally, opening for Primal Scream and The Gun Club. Roland also records a studio album with Nicky Sutton that would be released as Kiss You, Kidnapped Charblanc, and also one with ex-Barracuda's vocalist Jeremy Gluck, also featuring Nicky, Epic, and Genevieve, called I Knew Buffalo Bill. In September of 1987, the 12-inch EP Marry Me, Lie Lie is released by Mute in the UK, later released in the US as SST-183. And on October 26, 1987, Mute Records releases Get Lost, Don't Lie on LP and CD in the UK. It was later released in the US by SST on cassette and LP on November 4, 1987. Not the first time, Ryan, we've seen these types of licensing deals with SST, like Sonic Youth's SST releases being released in the, U 
in Europe by Blast First, for example. Right. But it is unique in the sense that these Immortal Souls, I believe, are the first overseas band to have a release on SST. Yeah. I was going to say the first non-US band, but we've had the Subhumans. True. In 1988, These Immortal Souls did two European tours and a lengthy U.S. tour. They released a 12-inch EP called King of California and a second full-length album called I'm Never Going to Die Again, both on mute. That came out in 92. Other than a few comp tracks, they played their last show in 1998. During that time, Roland and Harry Harry worked again with Lydia Lunch, releasing the awesome Shotgun Wedding album in, in 1991. Roland went on to release two excellent solo albums, Teenage Snuff Film in 2000 and Pop Crimes in 2009. He unfortunately lost a battle with liver cancer and passed away on December 30th, 2009. Harry, after moving back to Australia in the early 90s, went on to form psychedelic new wave band Pink Stainless Tail, who self-released three albums between 2003 and 2007 followed by the band Harry Howard and the NDE, releasing three more albums between 2012 and 2016. Genevieve played on Roland's solo albums and a few other records here and there, but it seems she largely left the business. Epic Soundtracks left These Immortal Souls in the early 90s and focused on his solo career, as well as recording periodically with his brother Nicky. He released four solo albums between 92 and 96 and unfortunately passed away in his sleep on November 6th, 1997. Some recommended listening, Ryan, for people want to check out more, of course, the early birthday party albums. In particular, Junkyard, for me, are pretty crucial. All of the birthday party albums. Yeah, they are. are And Boys Next Door, Door Door. Yeah. Uh, There's a good Crime in the City Solution comp called A History of Crime, but it focuses on the post-Roland era. The two EPs in full length they did with uh, the core group of These Immortal Souls are are all really great, though, if you can find them. Shotgun Wedding from 91 with Lydia is really great. I'm a huge Nicky fan, so my favorite thing he and Roland did together is that live record, Live in Osberg. Oh, no way. Is it acoustic? Nope. No, there's a full band. Oh, no way. Yeah, uh, Bang Records recently reissued that as Johnny Smiled Slowly on LP, but it's missing some of the tracks that are on the the CD version. The CD, yeah. yeah. That sounds good. Roland's two solo albums are great. Uh, Agreed, yeah. There's a good epic soundtracks comp called Wild Smile that's really good. Gathers up his, you know, some of the best of his solo stuff. A really good place to start with Roland would be the double disc Six Strings That Drew Blood comp. It spans his entire career, going all the way back to the Young Charltons. Has a few songs off of this album on it. uh, Several from the follow-up. That's a really good place to start. It's got birthday party tracks, Crime in the City Solutions, stuff off his solo records. Should we throw it over to Harry Howard? Let's do it. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Harry Howard. Harry, thanks for being on the show. It's a pleasure, Brian. Now, I'm wondering if you can take me back to growing up in Melbourne. That's where that's where you're you're from, right? Um, yes, yeah, yeah. That's where I am too. So, growing up in Melbourne, what were kind of some of the first musical memories? What were like the bands that you got into? Well, I, you know, as a child, there were things uh, we just got into stuff that I, that was very commonly around, like the Monkees. Um, 
because we watched them on TV and, uh, you know, and I was aware of like Elvis and um, what's his name? Bill Haley in the comments. Comet, right. Comets. <laughs> comets, not the comments. Um, just, you know, it's junk like that as yeah. a kid and the Beatles. And... Roland's older than you, right? Yeah, he was two years older than me. Right. So is he introducing you to things? Is he bringing records yeah, into the house? Yeah, so that started later, you know. Um, Roland, I, Roland was getting my attention with um, with the Velvet Underground and Sid Barrett and Roxy Music and David Bowie and you know all that sort of stuff that um, kind of proto, you know, stuff that glam and stuff that kind of. Okay. It's happening around or punk. Now, what about the local stuff? Once you finally start going out to shows, are you seeing bands like, you know, the Saints or the Scientists or Radio Birdman and and all those famous now, anyways, Australian bands? <laughs> well, kind of. You know, apart from a couple of early concerts of going as a kind of kid, then um, the first sort of club, or the, you know, or the Australian equivalent which I think the first show I went to was I was 16 and it was like a what's referred to as a beer barn in um, Melbourne. It's like this huge suburban pub um, which Radio Birdman played at a matinee show at and I had to sign a declaration to say I was 18 years old <laughs> and I looked about 12 and as long as you signed, they let you in anyway. And... There's just this vast kind of um, bar room that looked like a casino with all the pokies pulled out or something. And um, and there was Radio Birdman down for the first time in Melbourne, I think, um, blasting out, you know, the Smith and Wesson and all this stuff <laughs> and um, and getting yelled at by every now and then by someone in the crowd and... Well, we watched in rapt attention. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, you know, when you're still in high school, were you playing an instrument? No, I was sort of, well, no, not at that stage. A little bit later, like around um, the end of 1979, I started to, um, I picked up a, a acoustic guitar that Roland had discarded at home and uh, I was kind of, you know, trying to come to terms with that. And um, then, yeah, around like 79 or 1980, I started a band rehearsing with some other people that went through various names. And uh, yeah, and so that was my initial kind of introduction to being in a band and, and uh, writing songs and stuff and that. And, and did this um, band play really shows? played once in public. Just once. once, yeah. Yeah. It was a garage band. What about some of the bands Roland had going? Like, tell me about Tutho and the Ring of Confidence or the <laughs> Obsessions. What were what were these bands like? Okay, well, I can tell you what I know about them. I, um, I remember on one occasion going with my father to pick up Roland from a concert he was playing at his school or near his school in Tutho and the Ring of Confidence. And I think we, when we arrived, they played about a half a song and finished or something. And that's all I can remember about the experience. Um, 
you know, it was just a kind of, um, I guess there was a kind of scene in Melbourne before punk that was called the Carlton scene. And it just sort of, it just sort of was of that kind of era, this kind of 70s pre-punk Melbourne era, which was quite kind of a bit artistic and um, stuff, but, um, and it was, it kind of was kind of its own thing. But I just had a vague impression of that kind of thing going on. And, um, you know, that's all I noticed. In terms of the obsessions, I can remember rolling, going and rehearsing um, with the obsessions and um, asking about a rehearsal space that I knew about just because it was behind my high school. But, um, you know, I didn't know anything about them, really. So okay. The, the, the Carlton stuff. scene. Um, who would the Carlton like, scene? Yeah. yeah, who who are the bands that I would know maybe from the Carlton scene, or are there? Uh, right, here's where the mental blocks will kick in. Um, <laughs> the the band the Sports, the Sports, who uh, went on to have, um, I think they might have had a minor hit in Canada or something. Um, they became a pop band um, in Australia and had quite a few hits in Australia. That that was probably the most famous example. Although Skyhooks, I suppose, mm-hmm. was another one that came out of that scene. It was a kind of um, student scene, sort of very 70s politically kind of motivated by that kind of incredibly great liberalism we had at that stage in Australia. Yeah, it was kind of a, a kind of an arty take on rock, I suppose. It wasn't your kind of, uh, it wasn't related to ACDC, for right. example. Right. It was more related to, more influenced by European things that were going on, like Roxy Music or people like Kevin Ayres or that kind of thing. Okay. The Kings. So by the time the boys next door start playing, are, like, are you, are you going to those shows too? Or are you, do you have your yes. own friends and your own thing going or... Is this are no, you like, you're part of this scene by this point? Um, no. So what's happened has is that Roland has introduced, brought home um, Anarchy in the UK, the single, right? And um, and I've come home from from going on some tragic holiday at the beach with a friend, where we hitched down and hitched back and and drank some revolting wine in a little tent in a paddock and got harassed by local surfers um, <laughs> and heard this incredible single anarchy in the UK, um, which kind of put the fear of God in me, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, we followed up on that because um, my friends, and so Roland at that stage was kind of living in and out of our family home. Mm. He moved out when he was about 16 pretty much permanently, I think. Um, but he was coming back sometimes. And um, and so we had access to Roland's single collection and he was he was getting um, through, you know, record shops like the, the one Keith Glass owned who went on to put out the birthday party records early on. He was importing singles from the UK and stuff. And so we had, you know, the um, Buzzcock Spiral Scratch and stuff would come in and... Um, we 
Roland had already had the Ramones LP and and of course the um, New York Dolls and stuff and the Stooges. Are you going to see the Young Charlatans and oh, then yeah. and then the Boys Next right. Door? No, well I remember he said um, there's a band playing tonight. You really should come and see see them. They're really great. They do some Ramones covers, and um, so me and a bunch of friends thought, oh yeah okay, let's do this. We were used to just, because we were kind of in the outer suburbs and we were used to just hanging around in the outer suburbs. So, um, but we uh, kind of ventured together and about a half of us made it to this venue and I'm pretty sure it was the first Boys Next Door show actually. And then um, we started to go to the other ones as well because we were quite impressed. So when the move to London happens... When do you go out to London? Like, is it, does Roland call you up and say, hey, we need a bass player for <laughs> Crime in the City Solution? Or were you already there? How did, the, how did that happen? No, that was, um, I'd had a, before, you know, as part of our scene of people um, that in Melbourne, that kind of music scene there, um, Mick Harvey's girlfriend and a girl I knew, um, went over to London before anybody else, uh, and with another, and stayed with another person who was part of the scene called Vicky Bonnet, and um, and then they came, they came back, and then told everyone about well, they saw all the. No, hang on, I might be getting confused here. Anyway, uh, look, it was like a, it was a girlfriend of mine said to me at some point after they had gone about uh, some months after they were gone. Do you want to come over to London? I can lend you the money for a fee uh, for your fare. So, I um, I agreed to that arrangement <laughs> and um, went over. And then while I was there, and then when I was there, shortly after I got there, I was living with um, Mick Harvey, and he'd come back from Melbourne with these demos of Crime, and uh, he said, "Do you want to play bass?" He knew that I'm played bass a little bit and I'd filled in for the birth for Tracy Pugh at one stage on a few dates hmm. and yeah he asked me if I wanted to join of course I was really mad to do that and um and that was at that stage Roland wasn't even in it and I think Mick was trying to look for looking at other options but um in the end of course there was there was no one better than Roland available. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so Roland wound up in it. Now, as well. there was a US tour at that time with Crime in the City Solution at once you the band started yeah, started going. What was that? Was that your first time overseas? Yeah. Oh, well, my first time in America. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Obviously, I've gone to England. Right, right. <laughs> but um yeah, I mean, that was pretty um mind-blowing i suppose um yes i i just remember arriving in new york and it being very um uh bizarre to be actually be in america which was really just a, a place that existed on television and in film for me and so actually seeing um street names that were um you know getting this sense of this place that you knew somehow but it was it was only from film and television is quite that's quite an odd experience at first like what kind of shows would these have been mostly club shows i'm assuming 
Definitely. Yeah. Club shows. Yeah. Um, I can't remember very many of them at all, to yeah. be honest. Looking back now, it's hard to, because I did go to America a couple of times. Right. And I've sort of blurred the tours. But, um, yeah, I can remember playing New Jersey and Sonic Youth came and saw us. And, uh, oh, that's right. We played the Cat Club. Oh, yeah, we played the Cat Club in New York. Uh, that was that was a bit of an arrival. There were a lot of people there. Um and uh, yeah, and then we, we just went off on our little tour. I can't I can't remember terribly okay. much about, it, unless I'm specifically prompted. Sure, <laughs> that's fair. This is a long time ago. Yeah. Now, do you know how Epic came came into the into the picture? Yeah. Well, Epic was um, Epic was friends with Daniel Miller, who ran Mute Records, yeah. and uh, when. When the birthday party moved from 4AD to Mute, Mick met Epic because he was he used to do bits of work, odd jobs around place at um, at Mute in Bayswater in London, and um, and that's when he kind of you know discovered they just we needed a drummer and Epic was a drummer and. Uh, he, they already the Swell Maps knew um, knew some people from Melbourne anyway through this girl Vicky Bonnet, and um, so he he was invited to join. Okay, I think Mick initially was going to Mick initially was the drummer, but then he wanted to he realised it was a bit limited. And he wanted to broaden what we could do, so he he brought Epic in so that he could move over to other instruments. I've read various things, but it, it's kind of been suggested that what ended up becoming These Immortal Souls was basically just, you know, Roland trying to get some of his own songs written and recorded. Do you know if it was was the idea from the start that this was going to be a band? Well, that was a kind of concept of Roland's. I mean, the uh, really, uh, Roland had the idea for a long time that he wanted to, he was, I knew that he had songs that he was keeping for himself while he was even in the birthday party. So he had this little collection of songs going and of course he wanted to do his own thing. Originally, Roland was, you know, he was his own thing. He wasn't the birth, the guitarist for the birthday party. He was in a group called the Young Charlatans where he was the, which was a bizarre group with, two lead singers of Ollie Olsen and Roland and who formed a partnership. And, you know, so Roland still saw himself as, as a singer songwriter in his own right. Right. Who was just had fallen in with the birthday party and, um, which he loved, of course, but, um, but he, it wasn't, he wasn't able to, exercise that you know the singer songwriter side of himself in that band he had to um you know obviously he had to think about what nick might want to sing and they nick and roland were quite different in the way they like to express themselves i think yeah. roland was a much more romantic character and uh so yeah he had this collection of songs and i think he just formed this kind of vision of what he wanted to do and he thought to him, he just liked the idea of a band. I remember him 
telling me that. I mean, it could have been Roland S. Howard, and it possibly should have been from the start, but he he liked the idea of a band, and this, he kind of dreamt this thing up, and he, I thought, this, it'll be my band, it'll be called These Immortal Souls. And then he asked me and Epic to help help him on that uh, after he kind of, you know, had worked with us in crime and realised that he liked what we were doing. And so You did a bit of writing for the record as well. I think you get a co-rate on Blood and Sand, she said. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was, um, yeah, around the time when um, Roland and Genevieve were staying me, with me in Melbourne at my flat when the birthday party did Junkyard. And I, I was playing guitar in doing different things. I was like jamming with Simon Bonney, who was later a singer of crime and, um, and doing some things and trying to write some songs. And I had a few bits of music and Roland heard a couple of them. And then we wrote, uh, several sins and then he took another part of mine and put it and incorporated that into blood and sand. So, yeah. Okay. Now for the recording, it, it looks like there were several different sessions <laughs> over several different months at several oh, different yeah. studios with several different producers. <laughs> yeah. And some of these... Yeah, it's funny about that. Some of these producers so, uh, went on to, you know, some pretty acclaimed yeah. projects as well. Do you... What, like Fluff? Yeah. Do you recall the sessions at all? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, there was, um, I mean, we recorded in some vastly different studios. It was, yeah, we were working in, um, first of all, in one called The Strong Room, where we, we'd we recorded um, with Crime. And um, with uh, we worked there with Flood, and we put down the initial tracks, I think. And, you know, Flood's a really great producer um, in his surreptitious way because he's not someone who imposes on you but he does a lot behind the scenes that is is it helps you make make you sound good right you know we'd practiced quite a lot but we possibly possibly went in a little bit early and um to the studio but um yeah and then so we put down four tracks i think we had like two days or something and then there'd be a long pause while roland kind of considered what to do next and then <laughs> We'd um, tell Mute we wanted to book a studio and then they'd um, look around and see what was available. And so we ended up in a few. We worked in one called The Garden and we worked in um, Conk, which was owned by the Kinks. It was their oh. studio <laughs> and had a kind of built-in English pub in it. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Was but, Ray um, Davies around at studio. all? <laughs> hey. Was Ray Davies around at all, or Dave? No, we no. didn't see them. No, sadly, they didn't <laughs> pop in to say hello. <laughs> but yeah, and we worked with Alan Mulder, and um, who I think he was—he became quite well known. He was mm -hmm. like a protege of Floods at the time, and and there was another guy who worked with a Conk. But um, yeah, it was all—it um, was a strange way to make a record, yeah. piecemeal. Way. <laughs> Uh, and Barry Adamson, what's his connection to the recording session? Just a friend? He played drums on um, Hyde. Yeah. On the track Hyde. Um, and he was a good friend of Roland's. 
I think Roland would have would have loved to have worked with him. Honestly, I initially he probably would have marked Barry down as this is the bass player I would like. You know, and then he wound up with his younger brother, but because Barry was in the bad seats or something or doing something else. But um, I don't think he regretted that terribly. <laughs> and Harriet Freeman plays some viola on the record. Was she just another friend of the band? Yeah, well, she was just someone who um, was friends with my girlfriend, actually, who just happened to be on the holiday in London. And um, and she had a, a cello and she was a cello, was it? She did? Viola. Yeah. I can't remember, but she uh, she was a player, and um, and Roland realised that he had someone you know he could invite in and use. Okay. So she got she came in as well. That was good. The band had quite the first show. You opened for Sonic Youth. <laughs> and yeah, I, yeah. Well, that's... sounds like you maybe already knew them from your Crime in the City Solution trip to the U.S. Of course, you know, Mick and Roland knew Thurston and um, from the birthday party days. Right. And Sonic Youth had played with, I'm pretty sure they'd played with the birthday party in London. I could be wrong. But anyway, they were all, they all knew each other and Thurston and, and um, et cetera, Steve, et cetera, and Kim. They uh, they were all fans of Roland, so um, they were interested in what he was doing, and um, yeah, so they invited us to play. I think they were they wanted to see what he was doing, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it was a pretty good way to start. Actually, it was actually a really good show to me. And I believe they were the SST connection as well. Yeah, exactly. They um, introduced us to introduced SST to us. Now, do you remember shooting the video for the title track? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> title track? No. Uh, sorry, marry me sorry so for "Marry Me." Yes, I always get them confused yeah. because of the parentheses. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I remember doing that. Um, it was it was in a, a studio on a freezing cold day. Um, Snub TV. It was. Um, Pinko Fowler, right? He, I think he he did it. He had this channel called Snub TV. It was very enterprising. I think <laughs> have his own TV channel. I'm not sure what exactly how everything worked, but um, yeah. So we just set up there and um, one day and yeah, and went through it and you know, Roland tried to explain some ideas. Some uh, some of them Pinko got and some of them Pinko didn't and. But, yeah, so we made it, and thanks, Pinko. Yeah. Okay, so uh, do you know where the band's name came from? Well, and there's a, so- uh, there's a song as well. Was it, what came first, the, the song title or the band name? I think the song might have come first. And I think it was just a song written that Roland wrote about him and his, him and his you know, friends and in their kind of journey of, stardom isn't the word is it but um you know that kind of i guess you know that kind of teenage impassioned kind of you know longing to be kind of great somehow right um 
it seemed to be about that kind of stuff that people who wanted to leave their mark um, and Roland had that in him and you know he and his friends tended to be involved in that kind of thing as well right and I guess any band is really okay and the album title as well um, <clears throat> I was actually listening to his record with Nicky Sutton today and he says in one of the songs on there, he says the the line, get lost, don't lie. So it got me thinking that maybe that was like just an expression that you guys used or something like that around that time. Probably an expression that Roland used internally, kind of, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's very much a kind of slangy kind of sounding thing, isn't it? Like, like something you say. And I think, but, it, but it's kind of, you know... It, it is a kind of um, bit of writing, I think, that it expresses in just how he wants to to say to say it. You know, we're on a, on a street level of kind of you know, and what it says exactly is up for the up to the individual to interpret. But um, yeah, there was a song called "Get Lost, Don't Lie" on Nicky's record because um, unfortunately, when Roland made that record with Nicky, he used all um his leftover songs that yeah. were penciled in for <laughs> our second album, um, which then didn't, there was like a gap where the second album should be. And then there was a third album. <laughs> ah, so when, when I'm listening to kiss you kidnap Char Blanc, I'm actually hearing some songs or probably several songs that would have been the next, these immortal souls record. Yeah. I'd say that, I'd say that there were at least three songs that would have definitely been these Immortal Souls songs. Oh, songs yeah. that songs that you would have played together as a band, even? No, not that he he hadn't taught us, but oh. you know he was. Yeah, he was kind of waylaid. I mean, you know, that's all right. It's his, his songs. Yeah, but um, yeah, it was kind of odd. He did that "Get Lost, Don't Lie" one on the Nicky record <laughs> after he called his These Immortal Souls LP that, and then we ended up playing it live in our set. So sort of strange. <laughs> okay. So then you do a European tour and you go back to the States. Do you, do you recall yeah. anything about those tours? Were these all just one-off shows or did you have a, another band that you toured with? No, no, no. Well, the These Immortal Souls tour, that was quite a, quite a long one. I think we were there for about six weeks. Uh, I don't know. It was a good good tour. It was pretty ex, pretty exhausting. And Genevieve was um, had her health issues at the time. And she she probably uh, didn't make it to about a quarter of the shows. Mm. So that was interesting. We had to kind of um, try very hard as a three-piece. But it was quite a good challenge. Yeah. Um, at times when she couldn't make it. And, yeah, it was a very varied from, you know, full houses to um, to two men and a dog, you know. <laughs> it was an extremely varied right. experience. Okay. Tell me about touring with Lydia Lunch. What's that, oh, that, what's really that experience like? Well, it was surprisingly um, civilised. <laughs> I had a, did have a knife thrown at me at one stage, but you know I was never put into bondage and whipped or anything like that. So I consider myself lucky. No, it was great actually. That too, I should say something serious about it. It was a really high um, 
uh, artistic standard on that tour, I thought, it was, and the shows were really excellent. Oh, that European tour that Shotgun Wedding did, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's something I'll always think of with great regard. Post these Immortal Souls, tell me about some of your other bands that you went on to do. Pink Stainless Tail. Tell me about that band. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I'm friends with this um, so-called self-proclaimed um, experimental English novelist uh, Simon Strong, and we used to uh, talk about. Uh, so, you know, garage psych and things like that. And um, the Roland had started his solo project, and these model souls was kaput, I think. And um, and I just said to him, "Oh, why don't?" And we were talking about that song, and I said, "That'd be a good name for a band. Why don't we be that band?" And I think he said no at first, and then he came back and said, "No, I've changed my mind. We should do that, Harry." Time. <laughs> <laughs> And so we formed this band that was kind of meant to be inspired by things like um, the Red Crayola's Pink Stainless Tail mm-hmm. single, which is an incredible piece of work. But it was also very much, um, I mean, we weren't really able to do any of that. So, you know, of course, so we just brought in what we had and I had rudimentary guitar skills and this kind of background with... Um, that came from that, from the Melbourne scene, and Simon brought in this kind of strange kind of English punk attitude, uh, intellectual punk attitude, and a kind of um, self-destructive intellectualism into it all, and then the, and then we became this kind of peculiar Melbourne oddity, Pink Stainless Tail, and put out a couple of albums. And then Harry Howard and the NDE, I, I believe, was the next project that you did. Yes. Then, um, then I, by that time, I had um, written quite a few. I mean, Simon liked to write the songs in the Pink Stainless Tale. That was his his department there. And um, but I'd worked up a body of songs with lyrics, and uh, and I finally convinced some suckers to play with me, <laughs> and got Dave Graney and Claire Moore, who are very well known um, Melbourne musicians. Uh, who were in The Moodists, who were a really great um, post-punk band who were based in London and Melbourne in the 80s. And, um, and yeah, and then we, we've made three LPs. And the last thing I heard, uh, we haven't played for a while because of the COVID situation, right. but um, it's sort of been my vehicle, I suppose, right. with a lot of help from... Dave and Claire and my girlfriend Edwina Preston, who who plays a large role in that too. And uh, but uh, we did a interestingly enough, we did a recently there was a Kim Salmon book launch. Whether it's an order a biography of Kim Salmon was launched, and Kid Congo, who's very good friends with with Kim, going back to the Gun Club's days, um, flew over to play at this book launch for for Kim. Hmm. And the NDE became his backing band, as because he couldn't afford, we couldn't, you know, bring over all of the oh, wow. Kid Congo's Pink Monkey Monkey Birds, and so then we did this kind of mini tour, which was Kid Congo and the NDE, and there may even be Kid sent me a very, very wild mix of of one of our sets um, that's been considered 
for release at the moment. Oh, I haven't heard anything lately, but uh, it's pretty. Uh, it'll make a pretty fun uh, live record if oh, it wow. comes out. Yeah. It might be coming out in the states sometime. That's very cool. Tell me about the Pop Crimes show. I think you played one. Was it last night, or is it tonight yeah. that you have one? No, uh, it was the night before last, and there's one tonight. Oh, okay. Yeah, Pop Crimes is um, okay. There's quite a. There's a lot of people involved in the Pop Crimes uh, show. It's a tribute. It's a it's a show where we play all of Roland a lot all Roland's material, and that's the basis of the show. Is like it's a homage to Roland, um, by played by people who knew him and worked for him, worked with him, okay. or for him, or for him. <laughs> And that's including people like Johnine Standish from Hate Rock, Conrad Standish from The Devastations, and who's worked extensively with Roland. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hugo Race, another Melbourne musician who Roland played with quite often. Um, Mick Harvey, of course, on drums. Mick Harvey of a whole multitude of famous situations. PJ Harvey, the bad suit. Yep. Uh, he plays drums, and um, there's Genevieve McCucken, these Mortal Souls, irreplaceable keyboardist, and there's JP Shiloh, who uh, works extensively with with Mick, and does has a solo thing going on, and is um, and has figured out a way to play a very representational a very good representation of Roland's guitar playing. Okay. So, yeah, we do these shows which are... Uh, with, and every, everyone sings uh, at different times, and Roland's sister, Angela Howard, even sings in the Melbourne shows, in the Australian shows that we do at least. And, uh, yeah, look, it's a fantastic experience um, to do. There's so many talented people in that show. And it's such a great, uh, the material is just so good. Every song has such gravitas, you know, and everyone's really doing a great job. Uh, it's a bit hard to describe, but uh, yeah. the, the, sum, the sum of the parts is something special comes out of it all. Really amazing. It must be, you know, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, you know, a great... Uh, experience for you maybe uh, potentially a sad one at times but like i'm assuming you know there's lots of people afterwards that want to talk to you and you know tell you what kind of impact the music had mm-hmm. on them what's what's it like for you is it is it hard is it do you take comfort in it i i quite like it yeah it's hard and i quite like it uh you know i, I joke that i'm happy to be Roland's um, representative on Earth at the moment, if people <laughs> want me to be, uh, to what in what limited way I can do that. But um, yeah, it's all of those things. I often don't know what to say um, because often you know it's quite emotional. Um, yeah, and we get emotional responses too. People seem to you know Roland's. Uh, gotten into a lot of people's hearts and uh, so you get a lot of heartfelt feedback 
which is very interesting to get, and it's uh, and it's quite bizarre. It uh, it's it's not something you come across in your everyday life when people do, you don't know um, approach you in a heartfelt manner. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's interesting, and I still I don't really know how to describe it that well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we're gonna keep our eyes peeled for that Kid Congo and the NDE record. That sounds awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, you'll have to ask Kid about that. It's his. <laughs> that, it's in his pocket. But I heard that's the latest I heard. I hope I'm not. Um, I haven't, you know, spoiled anything by mentioning it. Yeah. All right, Harry, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Really appreciate it. Good luck with your show tonight. Thank you. Hope you have a great show. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Good to be able to talk to you too. Awesome. Thanks, Harry, for being on the show. That's that's one for the books, hey? Yeah, man. Oh, that's cool. It wasn't easy to set it up too. I mean, it's in Australia after all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was he was very patient with me while we well, we sorted out a time that worked for both of us, so I didn't have to get up at three in the morning to, to interview him. And he was busy. Uh, be, he was. I caught him between gigs with with his uh, pop crimes. Yeah. Shows. That sounds awesome. Yeah. They are able to like. Apparent. I mean, I don't know. Based on the news I'm reading, anyways, they're able to go to like and play like legit shows in Australia and New Zealand right now. Hey. Oh yeah. Well, they must be if he's playing. Yeah. Yep. I'm so I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about these tracks? Sure, man. History lesson part two. I only have this on LP. I know there are extra tracks on the CD, though. Are you going to walk us through those? Just on the mute version. Is there an SST CD? I don't think no, so. No, just a cassette okay. and LP. So no extra tracks for us. And I only have a mute version of the LP. That's it. These Immortal Souls are really hard to find on like physical copies it's impossible in canada hmm. impossible yeah okay the track first track on side one marry me lie lie written by roland uh the obvious single released one month earlier as the a side of the 12 inch ep uh, they also shot a video for it with peter pinko fowler filmed in the attic of london weekend television for snub tv video magazine in london you can see that video up on youtube Considering, Ryan, that Roland was really well known for his, like, noisy guitar work in The Birthday Party and Crime in the City Solution, this is, this song and the album in general are really driven by Genevieve's piano playing. There's some great keys on it. This song in particular, and not just piano on this song, but piano and acoustic guitar yeah. is really, like, the the main instruments. And, of course, the vocals. But you're right, you know, Roland has a pretty restrained approach on this record but it doesn't you don't lose anything it's just roland focusing on his songwriting the band in that video they all look you know like johnny thunders and oh dude you know you remember how we would go to shows together and see people up on stage and go we'll never look as cool as them <laughs> we we will never look as cool as roland s howard you know just lurking on stage it's pretty insane <laughs> yep He's playing, of course, his white Fender Jaguar in the video, supposedly only one of two guitars he ever owned. Uh, he played it from the time he bought it in Melbourne in 1978 right up until his passing. His gear, his his rig in general hardly ever changed. He always played for, through Fender Twin Reverbs. And considering, you know, he's 
really well known for his guitar sound. He didn't use a lot of pedals either. Just an MXR distortion pedal and an MXR blue box, which is like a fuzz pedal, octave pedal. Yeah, yeah. You can do a ton of crap with an octave pedal. Yeah. (laughs) Track two, Hide, written by Genevieve and Roland. This one credits Barry Adamson on the drum kit. Barry was bassist in post-punk band Magazine. Yes. He also played uh, with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Also Harriet Freeman on viola. And Epic is credited as playing the Tom Tom. Roland's guitar playing here is really reminiscent of what Jeffrey Lee Pierce or Kid Congo or Ward Dotson did in the Gun Club. Kind yes. of like that dissonant slide sound. Well, it's so funny because I don't know what it is. I think I think maybe it's you recommending the the gun club miami re-release and uh the the second lp with all the uh the demos on it yeah so i've been on a real gun club kick since you recommended that and uh did you get just, it yeah it's good yeah it's really good it is a- and i also rewatched the gun like well it's a jeffrey lee, jeffrey lee pierce documentary on youtube for like the 11th time i watched it <laughs> um but it's it's like they have a similar type of vibe, right? And sure. and it a lot of it is that guitar playing for sure. I mean, it doesn't doesn't surprise me at all that they shared the bill together from time to time because they would be the perfect double bill. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Genevieve's organ along with the acoustic guitar and all the reverb kind of gives this track a really haunting quality. Swampy yeah. is what I wrote down. Swampy. Roland was a far better singer than I think maybe he gets credit for as well. Track three, Hey Little Child, written by Alex Chilton. This is a track written uh, by Alex, of course, from Big Star, uh, released on his first solo album, which Ryan is holding up right now, called Like Flies on (laughs) Sherbert. (laughs) Also released as a single in the UK. Pretty faithful rendition. Again, really dominated by Genevieve's piano playing. It also has like an industrial music feel to it, though, because of that school bell for me. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And then we're already on the last song of side one, but it's eight minutes long. It's the song These Immortal Souls written by Roland. All Almost reminds me of something you'd hear on Lou Reed's album Berlin, which is an hmm. album I'm very familiar with. Definite goth influence also. Yeah. Yeah. A very slow, eerie track. Yeah. Then we flip it over and we've got a song written by Roland called I Ate the Knife. Suitably yes. menacing with Harry in time with Epic on the on the rhythm and Roland playing like oh. acoustic minor chords. The bass and drums steal the show for me on this song, 100%. I kind of like the, the way this one builds up with Genevieve coming in. At least I assume it's Genevieve. Roland gets a credit for playing organ on this, but there's an organ playing like droning chords under the piano. So I'm assuming that's what the credit is referencing. Mm. The next track, Blood and Sand, She Said, written by Roland and Harry. It's probably just the organ sound and the way it's played, but this is very Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds-esque for me. Roland's guitar licks like really make this a standout too for me. Yeah, Roland was on some mid-era Nick Cave records too, hey? Yeah, he was, yeah. Like, like murder ballads and 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 whatnot yep there's some odd sound effects on this that really work well and there's a version of this on the b-side of the 12 inch ep it's a different version 
Uh, so we'll be hearing this song again in about 19 episodes. And then the last track, One in Shadow, which was also called, I think on some versions, like the cassette version, One in Shadow, One in Sun. Another yep. another long song written by Roland, 7 minutes, 42 seconds. Love Harry's bass playing on this one. There's some chorus or something on it that sounds really great. A great dirge to end the record. Roland's vocals are really good. Barry Adamson gets a credit for backing vocals, probably on the One in Shadow, One in Sun part at the end. And then the record ends with an untitled track that sounds like a merry-go-round or something. Kind of, yeah. It's called, on the digital version... It's called The Fast Law Forward. Hmm. The Mute CD and the digital version has the B-side of the 12-inch EP, the two tracks, as well as alternate versions of I Ate the Knife and These Immortal Souls on it. That's it. That's the record. I don't know how long it is from start to finish, but it doesn't feel like a long album. No. it's a. I mean, it's a, full, a real full length, but probably between 30 and 40 minutes. Yeah, for sure. Something like that. Not, a, not an epic length or, or anything like that some great photos of the band on the front and back cover credited to burr who's christina burr who shot a bunch of band photos for the birthday party lydia lunch susie and the banshees uh, except for genevieve's photo which was ta- taken by susan mcguckin maybe her sister or her mom definitely from a different shoot than the rest of the band some artwork on it very similar to some uh, was on some earlier birthday party stuff. No real credit for like the blue heart and crown painting and the lettering on the back, but I'm guessing it was maybe Roland. Yeah, it says um, design CIB, the wacky funsters hmm. on the inner sleeve on the LP. Okay. I wasn't able to find out who the wacky funsters are though. Do you want some dead wax? Yeah, man. I think it's only on the A side. Now this is the mute version though, right? I only have a copy of this on a mute pressing. Yep. And so, so we don't know if yeah, we don't know if this is on the SST version or not. Don't know, don't care. <laughs> when it comes to dead wax, you takes what you can get, right? Yeah. So here is what it says on side A. Fear and self-loathing in London. Hmm. And let me make sure there's nothing on the B side. Actually, I'm wrong. That was the B side. There's nothing on the A side. Okay. Yeah, the A side just says Stum 48A. The B side has the dead wax. Um, not surprised, you know, fear and self-loathing in London definitely fits something about these immortal souls. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it is, but definitely fits something. Hey, uh, before we go to the ballot result, can I hit you with a quick Spaceman spiel about this record? Please do. It's, uh, it's very fitting. Here's what he said. Building a vast repository of passionate experiences that would drive ordinary mortals mad. The immortal souls of Roland S. Howard, Birthday Party, Epic Soundtracks, Swell Maps, Harry Howard, Crime in the City Solution, and Genevieve McGuckin have crafted a soul work that reflects the individual passions of their collective souls. Ooh. LP and cassette, seven fifty. It costs way more than that <laughs> to buy any These Immortal Souls these days, which is a shame. Yeah. All right, let's do the ballot result. Okay, man. Ballot result. So you're going to pick, but 
I'm definitely going for I Ate the Knife because uh, I just, I always groove to that one. Yeah. My picks are Marry Me, Lie, Lie, I Ate the Knife, and Blood and Sand, she said. Well, let's save Marry Me, Lie, Lie for the 12-inch, maybe. Yeah. Although okay. there's a great cover of a Stooges song on there, too, but mm. I'm down with I Ate the Knife. It's a great song. Yeah. Yeah, let's not put a, a These Immortal Souls covering the stooges i'm gonna preempt that okay i'm gonna pre i'm gonna preempt my opinion it should all be should all be og sure man original i'm down with that yeah. i'm down with that preempting yeah. yeah hey ryan thanks to harry howard for being on the show it was really great having him on yeah it would not have been the same without him so thanks so much yeah love hearing about like the early early scenes yeah, yeah. have you ever checked out this book inner city sounds no never or sorry inner city sound no it I've seen it on, like on Amazon before. I don't know if it's still available though. Yeah, this is, they repressed it in 2005. Hmm. And I, I can't remember how I snagged a copy, but I know as soon as I saw it, I'm like, I know nothing about that. And so I bought it. And that's probably right after it came out 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. Clinton Walker though. Hmm. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, we're going back to another Mojack fave. It's SST-165, the Minuteman Post-Mersh Volume 3 Comp. Nice. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.